Susan and I moved to Goodlettsville almost seven years ago, back in 2007. And uh, when we moved here, it was just us and the two boys. And Luke was just past one. He had uh, just turned one year old. And we uh, moved here in August, uh, September of that year, became pastor here at the church. And we moved here, we didn't have a house to move into. We were uh, staying in an apartment, renting an apartment. We had a house in Ripley we were trying to sell. And uh, we were staying over at Preston Run Apartments over by Kroger. And the first Sunday night we were here, uh, I had uh, a meeting and I had a uh, Bible study to teach. And so I was here at the church and Susan was at home trying to get herself and the boys fed and ready to be here for that night. And uh, in order to do that, the boys were hungry and needed something to eat. And so she was trying to get some stuff prepared real quickly. And one of the things that she was doing were was peas. Uh, now, some people like peas. Many people do not. That's all right. So she put them in the microwave, warmed them in the microwave and sat them down on the counter. Well, Luke at that time, like I said, was a little over a year old. And both of my boys have always been tall for their age. I, I don't know if you've noticed that, but... They've both, both been tall for their age. Eli's tall for his age, and Luke is a tall for his age as well. And they, doctors are telling us, you know, that they're going to be tall boys. Well, Luke, at one, being tall, was able to reach things he shouldn't be able to reach. And so Susan pulled the peas out, stuck them on the counter, and Luke reached up to get some. Pulled it down on himself, and all the peas and juice ran down his arm. Now, the problem with that is they were straight out of the microwave and they began, it burned his arm. So Susan calls me and says, hey, this is just a few minutes before we're supposed, I'm supposed to start teaching. Hey, we got an issue. We got to go. We had lived here uh, like a week, literally. We didn't have a clue where things were. So we're calling people to find out. Where do we take them? Which emergency room do we go to? We, we didn't have a pediatrician. We didn't have general doctors. We had just moved in and set up some stuff. And so we find ourselves in the emergency room. Everything is taken care of. He's fine. We move into a house. Because we know we have Luke, we try to baby-proof the house. Anybody ever done that? Baby-proofed your house? You know, all the stuff in there. All right. One of the ways we made proof the house is the house we moved into had a fireplace. We never had a fireplace before. It's exciting for us, but we also could just, you know, envision Luke and the fireplace. And so we bought one of those screens. You know what I'm talking about? One of those rod iron metal screens you put in front of it to protect Luke from the fireplace. Well, literally within the week we moved in, Luke found a way to get his finger in between where it, you know, turns in the crack there and to pull it down so that it snapped onto his finger and blood everywhere. We're back at these people are like, y'all are frequent customers. Do you want one of those little cards that you punch? Right. My point is. We became acquainted very early with where the emergency room was in this area. And where to go when problems arise. But what happens in life when it's an emergency that's not so easily fixed? What happens when it's not a medical or physical emergency that happens because we know it'll happen? Or what if it's a medical or physical emergency that's more care needed than just a quick trip to the emergency room? 
If it's that time that you're in the shower getting ready in the morning and just going about your normal business when suddenly on your arm there's a lump. A place that's not supposed to be there. Or you get the phone call from the doctor and you had normal tests, normal physical. It was that time of year and he calls and says, there's something here I want to take a look at. What about that business that you've been investing in, taking care of, putting hours in, and you're climbing the ladder, you're doing good things, and suddenly, instead of getting a promotion in the mail, you get a thank you for your service. It's no longer needed in the mail. What about when a family member has something happen and it's an emergency situation? And where do you go then? When it's emotional or spiritual or relational emergency. We're going to look at that today in our series, Age of Kings, just to kind of remind you where we are. We're, we're in a series where we're talking about these kings of Israel, one of the time periods in, in the life of really ancient history that we know more about than just about any other time period because we have... All these books in the Old Testament about it. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then a different perspective in First and Second Chronicles. We've got prophets, we've got Psalms, we've got Proverbs. We've got all this information about this time frame, and oftentimes we kind of skim over it. As we talk about the kings, we talk about David and Solomon, and that's it. And so over the next few weeks, what we're doing is we're looking at some of these kind of unknown kings and asking the question, what are the lessons we can learn from them? In the first two weeks, what we quickly found out is most of the time with the kings, what you can learn is what not to do. Amen. So the first week we talked about this king named Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon. The kingdom is great. It's growing. It's thriving. Everything's great. Some advisors come to him. The people come to him and say, hey, slack off on us a little bit. We worked really hard for many years. Could you take it easy? And Rehoboam does what? He doesn't slack off. He says, if you thought my dad was bad, wait till you see how much I will do. And we get to the end of his life and the kingdom is now split apart. Civil war has split it apart. Jeroboam is ruling in the north. Rehoboam's in the south. It's a complete mess. And we see the reason behind it. It says Jeroboam did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And so we, the first week, talked about this principle that's true. That if you don't deliberately set your heart on seeking the Lord, it will settle somewhere else. You know, a heart that's not deliberately set on seeking the Lord will settle on a lot of other things. And it may be, it may not be the same for everybody, but it will settle somewhere else. And that always leads down a path of destruction. Well, then last week we talked about one of the worst. Ahab, who's at his summer palace, who's at his camp, David, he looks over and he sees a vineyard. He thinks that'd be the perfect place for my vegetable garden. That's where I want it. He goes and asks the guy, can I have it? And the guy says... No, I can't. God gave it to me. I can't give it to you. And the king throws a first rate temper tantrum. You remember that from last week? Those of you that were here last week, you remember that? Goes in his room, lays in his bed, puts his face to the wall, says, I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not eating anything. I'm so mad. I'm so upset. There's nothing I'll do about it. And before long, it captivates his mind. He can't control his thinking. And we said that the principle last week was this. What you covet, you crown. And so it eventually takes over your thought life and what you desire and how you act, your emotions, your attitude, your actions, all become invariably tied to it. 
those of you that were here last week know the end of the story, right? He, his wife comes in and says, why are you so mad? And he says, because he wouldn't give me his vineyard. And she says, get up, you're the king, we'll take it. They kill the man and take the vineyard. And God says, you're done. Today, I thought we'd take a break from the bad kings. Is that all right? Apparently, y'all like bad kings. I don't know. Ask and no, nobody, no, we'll go back. We want more. Are you here? You, you there? Today, we're going to take a break from the bad kings. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, because here's what's happening. Today, we're going to see a king who is in the midst of a terrible emergency, a serious emergency. And what we see in his life is the way that he responds to it and shows us the way to respond. Now, just so you know, this is kind of interesting. At least it is to me. It may not be to you. Don't tell me if it's not. All right. This king, remember, there are two kingdoms, right? There's a northern kingdom and southern. In fact, I got high tech today. We have a map. Don't you love maps? Apparently not. All right. Here's the map. All right. And so to the north, can you see the blue? Say, I see the blue. All right, there you go. And the blue is the kingdom of Israel. That's the northern kingdom, all right? In the northern kingdom, that's where Ahab is king. In the time frame we're going to talk about today, Ahab is king in the northern kingdom. So that story we talked about last week is right around what we're talking about today. The northern kingdom was Israel. That's the people that got mad at Rehoboam and left. All right? You see the yellow? Say, I see the yellow. All right, that's Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Today we're going to talk about the southern kingdom because here's the thing. In the north, you can pretty much give the list of the kings in this way. Bad, 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 really bad, the worst, worse than the worst, even worser. All right. That's not a word, I know, but it'll work. In the south, at least every now and then you had a good. So you had like good, bad, bad, good, good, bad. Bad, good, bad, 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 bad. In the south, we're going to talk about today one of the kings that was good there. We're going to leave this up for a minute because it makes a big difference for you to see it in what we're going to talk about. Chapter 20, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, just listen. It's a story. It'll kind of just flow for you. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, along with some of the termites, came to make, just seeing if you're listening, all right? Really, there are three people mentioned there. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and then it's the Menuhites, all right? It sounds like Menudo from when I was a kid, all right? The, some of you won't get that at all. Some of you will get it much later, all right? We don't know who that third group is. Nobody has a clue who they are. But we know who the other ones are. They're descendants of Lot. Now, somebody tell me, who was Lot? He's Abraham's nephew, right? So he's related to the Israelites, but it's not a part of the Israelites. In fact, Abraham was the one called by God and God says, Abraham, go. And Abraham takes Lot with him. And from the moment Abraham takes Lot with him, Lot causes issues. Chooses land, has to divide it up, ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah in the gate of the city where he apparently was a leader of this terribly immoral city. Only through God's grace and Abraham's pleading is Lot saved. But perhaps one of the most tragic moments in his life is that he had relations with his daughters. And out of that came a tribe of people called the Moabites. In fact, the word Moab means literally from the father. 
Do you see where Moab is here? It's right there. It's the neighbor, right? Right across the Dead Sea. So the Moabites, the Ammonites that are a part of that crew, some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. So you've got the Moabites coming to make war. Verse 2. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. Now, anybody know who Edom is? Edom's are the, Edomites are the descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother, related to them, not Israelites. From the other side of the sea. It is already in Hezazan Tamar. That is, they are already in Engedi. Doesn't that make you feel strange there? Anybody know where Engedi is? Yeah, no, nobody knows where Engedi is. I didn't know until I looked it up for this, all right? Here's what's happening. Where the, Mo- where the Moabites are here. Don't you love my high-tech finger pointing? Moabites are here. Edom is right underneath. Here's what's happening. They have formed together to go and attack Judah because they think it's vulnerable and they're close. Here's what it would be like for us. Let's just imagine for a minute, all right, that we are the sovereign state of Tennessee. Whether you were born here, you lived here, whatever, you're now here. And we are being attacked on a full-scale attack by the sovereign state of Kentucky. I don't know why they got so mad, they just got mad at us. And they have decided to bring their full force to bear on us. And we get word that they have mobilized Fort Campbell. They are using resources in Fort Knox. They are coming at us. And someone comes in and yells in the midst of this, Pastor, they're on their way. They're all ready to White House. Now, for some of you, White House is home. But for those of us sitting right here, what we realize is they're close. And it's an army that will be described later in this passage as a horde. Now, I don't know how many is in a horde, but it's more than a couple. If you're watching a movie and there's a horde of enemies coming, it is massive. Jehoshaphat is sitting there in Jerusalem. And he gets word. That these groups are on their way. Verse 11 would actually tell us down a little bit later that the reason they're coming is to dispossess them of the land God had given them and to wipe them off the earth. This is what you call an emergency. The red lights are going off in the office. The DEFCON level has been raised. The terror warnings are high. Jehoshaphat, unlike many of the kings that would follow him or that would come before him or that would especially rule north of him, does exactly what he's supposed to do. And he shows us what we need to do when those times of emergency come in our lives as well. Look at verse 3. Alarmed, or another phrase says, Jehoshaphat was scared. And he set himself to seek the Lord. 
Verse 3 tells us what we need to do in the midst of an emergency. What the step is. And it is to set ourselves to seek the Lord. Now, let me just tell you what that word set means there. When he says that he set himself to seek the Lord. When it says he decided to inquire of the Lord. It is a word used of people that have had their feet locked into stocks. He is firm. He is established. This is what I'm going to do. In fact, it was also the word, and this is a little bit of a graphic picture, but in that day, one of the ways that they would uh, mark bond servants is that they would lay them down and someone would strap them down or someone would lock them into place while they took a huge awl, big stake, and drove it through their ear. This word was the word used for what they did to make sure they didn't move. What it says about Jehoshaphat is this. He decided in an emergency that the only result was to firmly establish he was going to seek the Lord. In an emergency, the only real choice we have is to seek the Lord. Now, here's what I love about this passage. It doesn't just leave us there because there are a lot of people that would nod with me. Absolutely. That's right, Pastor. Amen. Good job. Yes. But they don't have a clue how to do that. It's like saying, I know I need to go to the emergency room, but I don't have transportation or directions to get there. What I love about this passage is it shows us in the next few verses how Jehoshaphat. Isn't that a great name, by the way? Some of you are looking for baby names sometimes. We need a little Jahashi around, right? It shows us how he sought the Lord. Look at verse 3. Alarmed, startled, scared. Jehoshaphat set himself to seek the Lord. And here's what he did. Four steps real quickly. We're going to see this this morning. Now we're going to start with the one that is probably most foreign to you, but is the one that is at the beginning for him and for the nation and for many people in scripture. He proclaimed a fast for the entire nation. Fast. Denying yourself of some physical need in order to focus more directly on Spiritual needs. In fact, if you want to heighten your spiritual awareness, if you want to go to another level and how you're living your life, thinking about the Lord, then you begin some sort of fast. The idea is that when we deprive ourselves of something physically, we begin to seek other methods of filling the needs in our lives. And here's the thing for us in a Western civilization, in an American culture, we never really are not, I won't say none of us, but most of us never really understand what it means not to have a physical need met. Let me ask you a quick question. If 100% of your physical needs are met 100% of the time, what percentage of need does that leave out there? Zero. The truth is, many of us not only have 100% of our physical needs taken care of, we got like 120%. Food, shelter, clothing, material stuff. We live... As the most blessed followers of Jesus in the history of the world. 
But sometimes what that means is we don't recognize our need for him. When Jehoshaphat gets the news that they're surrounding us, I've got to set my attention on seeking the Lord. The best way I know to begin is to call for a fast of the entire country. Now, we don't talk about that much. And there's a good reason we don't talk about it much. Most of us is because as soon as we hear the word fast, we think of eating and we really like to eat. Amen. We also don't talk about gluttony a whole lot and say, well, preacher, don't preacher, don't get into that for sure. But it is biblical. Thirty nine times. Excuse me, 49 times in the Old Testament, 27 times in the New Testament. Fasting is mentioned. It's talked about. Jesus told us to fast. Now, he said there's some warnings there. Don't do it for people to see. Don't do it just for a weight loss program. Don't do it just to kind of to, to, to let people know I'm super spiritual. Do it in order to draw closer to God. Jehoshaphat looks and says the first thing, the first step to going towards the Lord, to seeking to him for me is to fast. Verse 4, and almost always accompanied fast is the second thing he does. Then the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. You know what we call that? Prayer. Seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So they come from all over. And the point is not that they came to the temple. The point is that they came together. Now, the temple was a symbolic, significant place. But the point here is that they came together. And when God's people come together to seek God, amazing things happen. Unusual things happen. Supernatural things happen. In fact, us just being together is one of those times when we sing praise and worship and seek the Lord. Significant, important things happen. They gather there. And Jehoshaphat begins to pray, and I love his prayer. Oh, Lord, God of our fathers, that just means you have been faithful for over a thousand years. For us, it is thousands of years. You will continue to be faithful. Who is the God in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. It's good sometimes when an emergency comes and you begin your prayer to give praise and honor to the Lord because it reminds you how awesome it is to be on God's team. You are powerful. You are mighty. There is none like you. You have been faithful to us. In fact, he says, you're the one that when nobody thought we could do anything. You drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people. You gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. We have lived here. We have built a sanctuary for you. God, you are mighty. You are awesome. We give you praise and honor and glory. How do your prayers begin? Because all significant prayers in Scripture begin with an acknowledgement of the greatness of God and who he is and what he's done. And here we see that happening. There's no rush to this is what we need. There's no rush to I just heard about this. There is a pause and a reverence and an understanding of who it is we're talking to and the power and the majesty and the glory of His name and the power that is at His disposal. He gives honor and praise to God. He says, Lord, we're in a tight spot. He says, we built a sanctuary here. We've worshipped here for years. And He says, if you remember, as if the Lord wouldn't remember, 
We said and we stood right here on these steps. We dedicated this temple and said, if calamity comes upon us, whether it's a sword of judgment or a plague or a famine or, or some kind of something that comes that is a disease. He said, if that happens, we will stand right here and we will ask you for help and you will show up. Part of the key to making it through emergencies in your life is to know beforehand what you're going to do when the emergency comes. You know what we get every year from school now? One of the first projects we get for our kids is to us as a family to develop an emergency action plan. We have to draw the little things. If we're in this room, how do we get out? We have to draw the map and all of that. Because they say if you don't know what you're going to do when an emergency comes, then you have a much less likely chance of surviving. Well, here what he's saying is we have known for years what we would do if this happened. And it's happening, God, so we're ready. In fact, he says now we've got people surrounding us. There were people you told us we couldn't kill because they were our relatives. So we didn't. And they're repaying us by driving us out of our land and destroying us. And then we get to the part and the important part of understanding this prayer. He says, and God, are you going to do something to them? Because we are powerless to do anything. We don't know what to do. We don't have a clue how to solve this. And we know that it's a hopeless situation. But our eyes are on you. One of the hardest statements for a human being to make is I am powerless and I don't have an idea at all what to do. Any of you out there fixers? Problems come up, you try to fix it, right? Any of you have spouse that are still trying to fix you? Let me see. Yeah, I got some hands way up on that. There we go. You know how difficult it is to say, I don't have a clue. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Scripture teaches us over and over again that we are never more powerful in our lives than the moment we admit that we can't do it on our own. God, we don't know what to do. But we're looking to you. So Jehoshaphat fasts and he prays. But then it's time to move to action. And after he fasts and after he prays, he commands his people to move to action. Simple word. He calls them to stand. To do something about it. I heard Bill Hybels call this the Popeye moment. How many of you remember Popeye the cartoon? All right, when I grew up and I come home from school, every afternoon Popeye was on the TV, right? Didn't you love that cartoon? Who's your, somebody yell at your favorite character? Popeye. You know. No, olive oil. We had an olive oil. We got any wimpy fans here? Good. I don't like wimpy either, right? What's wimpy doing the whole time? Eating hamburgers, right? Chris, are you raising your hand? You're a wimpy fan or are you answering... Oh, you're, you're, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize the hand raised for that. He's eating hamburgers all the time, right? I'll, I'll pay you tomorrow for the hamburger today, right? And then you've got the bad guy. Who's the bad guy? Brutus. 
Brutus is always picking on Popeye, right? Poking at him. Popeye's a funny-looking guy. I mean, he's skinny, he's mild-mannered. You know, I'm talking pre-spinach, all right? He's mild-mannered, he's skinny, except for his biceps are, like, huge, right? Now, there comes a point, like in all those kind of Popeye moments, when he's been pushed to the limit, when he's been, uh, he's taken enough, when it's over, when it's finally done, right? And he says the same thing in all of them. I just happen to have a clip for you. All right. You want to watch it? That's it. Like, I didn't see it. Play it again one more time. All right. If we can. All right. He says, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. It's over. Right. Now, what comes right after that? Spinach that's always mysteriously opened, you know, jagged edge around it, pops it in and boom, you know, superpowers. All right. Now, here's the thing. Jehoshaphat says we have fasted, we have prayed, and now it's time for action. But the action that's required is interesting. So they all get together, they're standing there and the spirit of the Lord comes upon a prophet and he comes and he says, listen, This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the battle is not yours. It is God's. The one that's going to fight is not you. It's the Lord. And wouldn't you rather have the Lord fight for you than you and your own strength? Tomorrow, march down. They will climbing up and you will find them at the end of the gorge. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them and the Lord will be with you. And I love that. When you're in the midst of an emergency, you have to come at some point to the place that I can't do anything about it. I can't solve it. I can't make it better. I can't do anything to fix the situation. But Lord, I trust that you can. Here's the truth. We serve a God who is all powerful. Now, that doesn't mean things don't happen that he doesn't want to happen. In fact, there are lots of things that happen on this world that God doesn't endorse to happen. He doesn't like sin, evil. He doesn't like abuse. He doesn't like people being taken advantage of. But what we have is an amazing God who's able to take whatever situation happens and turn it into something that happens the way he wants it to. Scripture says... That he told Jehoshaphat, I'm going to fight for you. And he tells him to simply stand firm. When emergencies happen in your life and they're not easy to understand, the simple thing to say is, I'm going to run away, I'm going to hide, I'm going to deny it, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of it. But God looks at us and says, stand in the promises of who I am and what I will do. He said the same thing to Moses. He says, get up, Moses, go and talk to Pharaoh tomorrow morning. Stand there in front of him and declare, let my people go. He does the same thing in Romans. He tells us to stand firm in our faith. In Ephesians, he says, put on the full armor of God. So that when you have the full armor of God on, you may stand your ground. And then he says simply, once we fasted and prayed and we stand our ground and believe in him and trust in him, is that we simply believe that he's going to do it. 
Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. I love this scene. Then some of the Levites from the Kohalites and the Korolites, all the ites, that just means they're the worship leaders. The band has gotten together and they're getting ready to lead them in worship. They stood up and they praised the Lord, the God of Israel, and I love this, with a very loud voice. Very loud voice. Anybody watching the World Cup at all? Woo, thank you, Riley. Appreciate it. How many of you watched a little bit of it at least? All right. When I watch the World Cup, I'm like a lot of American soccer fans. I watch uh, soccer every four years, all right? And I, but I, I, I have watched a little bit more. Uh, my trips to Brazil have made me kind of sensitive to soccer fans. And uh, I, so when the World Cup happens, I root for two different teams. I root for the red, white, and blue to beat Ghana and Germany and Portugal and was all in with those matches. But I also, because of my seven trips and my love of the people, I root for those guys wearing those yellow jerseys yesterday. And yesterday, anybody watched the game yesterday? Okay, I'll tell you about it since nobody watched it. Or it ended at the end of regulation in a tie and they go to penalty shootout. Each side, five shots on goal. Goalkeeper, one guy, one-on-one, whoever gets the most goals wins. Now, let me tell you the tension that was happening in Brazil. Danny uh, Castro was here this morning, actually with his... Uh, Dad and stepmom from Brazil, and I, I'm just glad they were here because I can tell you the tension in Brazil yesterday when it was tied and they were going to penalty shootouts, the, the whole nation almost had heart attacks simultaneously. And the last guy from Chile gets up to kick. Brazil's ahead one, by one goal in the penalty kicks. And he strikes it, and it hits the post, and ricochets off. Brazil wins and advances. Here's what I thought was interesting. They went to the studio guys, and the studio guys are near Copacabana Beach, Rio, right under the Jesus statue. And they said, we are two miles from the fan zone. And when that thing hit the post and went off, we could hear the screams of a nation. In this moment... There was a deafening sound of praise from the people of God. And I want you to get this image. They have got armies surrounding them. They're in White House on their way down. They have circled them and the armies are bigger than they can ever handle on their own. And instead of talking military strategy, they are face down Hands lifted, standing firm in a cacophonous, loud worship moment because they believe in their God. That's how you seek the Lord. You fast, you pray, you stand your ground, and you believe He's going to do what He said He was going to do. Let's pray together.